While the largest crisis the DC multiverse ever faced, Crisis on Infinite Earths was by no means the first such crisis to affect the DC universe. Crisis on Earth 1 and Crisis on Earth 2 kicked off the JSA-JLA team-ups in Justice League of America number 21 and 22. Crisis on Earth 3 was the second team-up. Crisis on Earth A. Crisis on Earth S. Crisis on Earth X. Crisis in Tomorrow. Crisis in the 30th Century. Crisis on Earth Prime. They were all world-ending events, but none of them could compare to the tragedy and triumph of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Arian. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earth. The DC Universe will never be the same. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Tales of the Justice Society of America presents Crisis on Infinite Earths. It'd be interesting to see if we can ever work out an even longer title in some future project. (laughs) (laughs) Tales of the Justice Society of America presents Zero Hour Crisis in Time. Uh, Infinite Crisis, Final Crisis, Blackest Night podcast. <laughs> the retrospective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some longer title we can work out, but whew, that's a mouthful. Anyway, uh, my name is Scott Gardner, by the way. Welcome to episode two. Joining me as always is my very good buddy, Michael Bailey. Hey, Scott. You know, it's really great that, you know, we, we, we covered, you know, the first episodes out there seems to, uh, seems to have, uh, been quite the success amongst the people that have gotten back to us on it. I haven't really heard a bad review yet, though I'm sure right. they're out there. Well, we do have uh, a little bit of uh, feedback that we want to go ahead and address right out of the gate here. So, did, did you have anything before we jump right into this? No, Mike? I'm just I'm just really excited. I mean, we, we, we have all of our history stuff out of the way, so it's it's probably going to cut out an hour of the episode <laughs> at that point. So. Right. So, I'm going to go ahead and dive right into this then, and our first one is from Robert Ludwig, and he uh, entitles this one simply, Finally, Crisis, which I like. 
He says, Howdy guys, he says, just wanted to write in to let you know I am glad you are finally getting to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Here's a little of my history with Crisis. Until 2012, I had never read it. Well, that Mayan apocalypse it. probably scared him into Right. Uh, into so that. I better get this one in before, uh, yeah. <laughs> I had heard of it, but that was all. Mainly because I pretty much read Marvel and maybe a couple issues from IDW with some other company. However, uh, I, was, uh, I just was not into DC Comics. In listening to the show in 2012, you piqued my interest on the subject. So I went out to eBay... And for less than 10 bucks, including shipping, I was able to get a copy of The Trade. Wow, that's a, that's a steal mm-hmm. right there. He says, I read it. I will admit that by not knowing about some of the characters' histories or just uh, what I had heard on Tales, some of the grandness of it all was lost. Well, dig it out and, and reread along with us, and hopefully we'll be able to fill in some of those gaps for you on this. He says, in reading The Trade, I found Psycho Pirate to be very interesting. He became my uh, favorite... Uh, he became my favorite unfamiliar, at least to me, character... Oh, I can see what he's saying. He became my favorite unfamiliar, at least to me, character in the story. I am not 100% sure why, but I just enjoyed the parts uh, he was in the best. As far as those characters I was more familiar with through other media, Superman, Batman, etc., I, I think the Superman, Superman, he says in question marks, uh, parts were also very interesting. I cannot wait to hear your coverage of the issues. I'll be rereading the story each month prior to listening to your coverage. All right, there we go. Right there. Awesome. Uh, just so I am more familiar with the story as you talk about it. Thank you for the shows and keep them coming. And again, that's, <clears throat> pardon me, from Robert Ludwig. He's in Nevada, Iowa. There's a Nevada, Iowa? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is P.S. Michael, in episode 88, Scott made a reference to a widow and you retorted, widower than what? Scott was confused, and you just passed off the comment as from an obscure movie. The movie was Haunted Honeymoon, starring Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner. While not a great movie, it has its moments. Thanks again. <laughs> Have you ever seen that movie, Scott? I, man, it's been forever ago. I mean, I saw it on, uh, it was probably HBO or something, but I, I would not have remembered the line. But it, it, it is a funny line, though. It's, it's, it's a great little movie, because it's Gilda a few years before she passed away. Mm-hmm. And she and Gene Wilder were married, mm-hmm. and they play radio personalities from like the forties. Uh, so the right. beginning of the film is like an episode of whatever they're doing, and then they go off and have this like haunted type, you know, spooky house thing. Um, Dom DeLuise is in it. I, you mentioned HBO. I watched it like a thousand times on HBO because <laughs> that's what you did with HBO. So. Right, you know it's always funny because I, I I make uh, I make references to movies all the time, and I don't really know that I'm doing it. Things will just stick in my head over the years. Like for for a long time, when I especially after I first started dating my wife, whenever we would uh, whenever Thanksgiving would roll around or something, I would I would always go, "Are we gonna have mashed potatoes?" <laughs> and I would say it, and I would be like, you know, what the... And I would, and I'd laugh, and she'd laugh. But I would be like, where the hell did that come from? And we finally bought the DVD of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. <laughs> and at the end, Emmett's, uh, Emmett's pal, who talks like this, uh, asks the frog who owns the restaurant, do they have mashed potatoes? And I was like, that's it! So, I'm glad somebody got one of my references. I, I, I wonder how many other people do that, though, where they, they have some 
you know something that they quote all the time, but they have since forgotten where it's from. Because yeah. I know that I do. I, I know that I have several of them I use on a regular basis, and I'm like, ah, I don't even remember what the hell that's from anymore. I just like the sound of it. You mean like the term wheelhouse? Yeah, you know, I'm going to try to drop that. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that on thing? Facebook. I'm not yeah. actually making a comment. I just the only reason I brought it up is that I saw you posting about it on Facebook. <laughs> Yeah, I wondered if uh, if that's what you were talking about. Yeah, there was a there's a great thread uh, going on Facebook where uh, I forget where where that's going. I think it's in the podcast community of this guy just started. You know the two you know the two things I'm really sick about hearing you know in, in other podcasts. Uh, you're hearing the podcasters say, and I know Wheelhouse came up in the in the long discussion that <laughs> that spun out of that. So I'm like, hmm, I guess I gotta drop that. I didn't realize I, other people were saying it, too. I, I have really got to stop saying, to be fair, every five minutes. Yeah, uh, I do, uh, to be honest, or, yeah. you know. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> crisis confessional. Mike and Scott tell you what they're going to stop doing in the shows, which they will do 50 <laughs> times during the course of this episode. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, though, I, I do think that... You know, if you listen to to our earliest stuff, I think just that process of having to edit mm-hmm. shows teaches you how to edit yourself on the fly. And I don't think we have near the verbal ticks that we did when we started out. At least I hope not. Anyway, I mean that's that. I think that right there is a, is a sign of vast improvement when you stop doing verbal tics that you had when you started podcasting because you hear yourself and you're like oh i can't stand that when i say this or that i do this and you you start editing yourself on the fly yeah i try anyway (laughs) all righty our next email is from chris and cindy franklin though it's probably just from chris franklin i would make more of a bit out of that but andy and michael uh, have that locked down on hey kids comics (laughs) with uh, chris's emails but uh chris uh, his His subject is really simple. Crisis! With an exclamation point. (laughs) Scott and Mike. Well, just like the crisis itself, you lived up to the hype. I'm going to let that one... I'm going to bask in that one for a second. (laughs) Flawless job, gentlemen. From the intro, the personal stories, the synopsis, the notes, the music, the editing, you nailed it. As far as podcasting goes, I want to be you guys when I grow up. And he leaves a little smiley face. And by the way, Chris uh, is uh, co-hosts a show called Supermates with his wife Cindy. And if you want like a really fun little back and forth podcast about anything and everything involving comics and geek culture, it's really refreshing to hear a husband and wife team, uh, you know, out there who both kind of enjoy the same things. Uh, right, though, though Chris more than more than her, I, I get the feeling on certain things. Uh, to continue with the email and end the plug because he doesn't plug himself, which he should. I was there with Crisis Number One as well. I had just turned ten when it hit, so this was the biggest, most cosmic story I'd ever witnessed. Unfortunately, I did miss a few issues thanks to the dreaded unpredictability of newsstand distribution. One of those was issue eight with the final fate of Flash, the last issue I picked up. I still. Remember finding it at a flea market a good year to, to a year and a half after Crisis number 12. You would have thought I found the Ark of the Covenant. Now, <laughs> now, now I have this image of somebody taking Crisis number 8, putting it in a, uh, in a, um, what are well those? Well of Souls? Yeah, no, not the Well of Souls, but putting it in a giant, like, uh, like a, a box, and then putting it inside a giant, uh, warehouse full of such boxes. Right. Uh, like at the end of Raiders, so... 
<laughs> Though to find it, Chris, did you did you like have a little like staff thing that you held up to the sun, and it shone the light through and pointed exactly where <laughs> Crisis Number Eight was? Oh, God, I'd love to do. Uh, there's like 16 bits that can come out of that. Um, I love Crisis. Chris continues. Uh, I gotta stop interrupting this email. I think it is the Alpha and Omega of intercompany crossovers. I do have some problems with its reasons for being. While I don't blame Crisis for all the questionable changes to the DC Universe that followed in the last 20 years, I do feel the removal of the multiverse cost DC its unique identity among other fictional realms. I feel like DC has been struggling with that identity ever since. I, like Scott, never had one single problem with keeping up with the multiverse. Keep in mind, my mom bought me my first JSA comic, All-Star 74, when I was three. Once my mom read it to me and explained there were different versions of Superman, Robin, Wonder Woman, etc., I was fine. So to me, Wolfman's theory never held water. I agree with Michael that DC was firing on all cylinders in the late 70s and early 90s. Uh, Late 70s? Late 80s? God! (laughs) I have got to stop drinking before I start recording. Um, In the late 80s. Wrong day to stop sniffing glue. In the late 80s, early 90s, and even though Zero Hour had aspects I didn't like, what they did to the JSA was criminal. Odd that he mentions that, because I just edited my, ti- uh, typed up a tirade on that for, 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 for <laughs> from crisis to crisis, because we got to that issue, and I had some issues, <laughs> like, like serious issues with it after the fact. Uh, Chris continues, I feel it recharged the DCU and continued that momentum. Somewhere in the early aughts, that got lost, and to me, the DCU has been floundering ever since. It's interesting that several of my favorite podcasts are intersecting in a way as you launch this series. Rob and Shag are just about to finish up the original run of Who's Who, which was, of course, Crisis's sister title at the time. The series has been cataloging the original multiverse, but by the end... Uh, was sweeping the remnants under the rug. Also, the Leylands just finished JLA Avengers, arguably the best sequel Crisis ever had. I agree with Andy that because it touched on elements of Crisis and captured its scope without doing any damage to continuity, it earned points for best sequel from me. Enough babbling. Looking forward to the next year's worth of episodes. Chris Franklin. Thank you very much, Chris. Chris also writes into uh, the Earning My Ears podcast, and while we haven't yet uh been addressing our uh feedback on that show we are about to start doing that on the show and i know that uh, i have a nice little stack from chris writing into that show so i really appreciate him being a, a faithful listener to two true freak shows very much and uh we have to do some sort of a, a, a crossover at some point get chris on uh some episode or other of a, of a two true freaks related subject and uh and just chit chat him up sometime all right, we got another one here. This one's simply entitled The Crisis. I like this. Everybody's just keeping it simple with the titles. I Right to the point. This one is from Dale Russell, and Dale writes, The open of your coverage uh, had y'all doing a recap and discussing impact. I was listening and wondering if y'all realize that what you said about Crisis is the same as the New 52. You said you wish the writers had been all made to get on board with the new universe. That is exactly what editors did in the New 52, and they got blasted for it. Crisis just combined and streamlined the history. That's what the New 52 did. I found that the universe had more of a unified vision after Flashpoint than it, uh, than it did at, cri- at Crisis. I think the big difference is writing and writers. The burned Superman is my Superman. The writing style of the time was a fun, mood-appropriate, compressed storytelling. The modern style is ultra-dark and decompressed. 
by the time I get to the end of this of a storyline in six months, I'm not sure I still care and like comics. The quote-unquote failure of the New 52 is modern comics writing style. The flashpoint is the modern crisis. The New 52 was a success and did spike sales. The writing uh, could not keep them. The crisis made me a DC fan. The New 52 brought me back to DC. And that's pretty much all there is to, you know... You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and argue with Dale because you know people like what they like, and I'm not gonna sit here and try to to crap on somebody's parade. Uh, I, the only thing I'm gonna argue with is that I don't think the New Fifty Two had a unified front. Uh, I think the New Fifty Two was thrown together hastily, comparatively, relatively, and that shows in the fact that continuity retcons started happening six months into the new universe you know they they you know superman's origin and 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 his thing was all kind of screwed up because action comics was five years ago and the superman title itself which went through a creative change every six months for the first year or so also you know had you know couldn't keep up with that because grant hadn't established what the history was so there's no history to reference to so you're kind of left not being able to do all that much with the character the fact that everything changed except green lantern and batman and then the events of those characters were compressed into a five-year timeline i i i just don't agree that that they were getting blasted because the editors uh, had it all worked out from, from from all accounts. Editorial interference led to a number of creators leaving their titles. So, you know, if you like the new 52, uh, except for, you know, the kind of the dark storytelling, that's great, Dale. I'm not going to tell you to stop reading anything you're reading. I just don't agree that... DC had its stuff together with the new 52, uh, you know, over crisis, because I, th- I think the problems that plagued DC after Flashpoint are the same problems that plagued DC after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Fair enough. I'm sorry, that was more of a diatribe than I wanted to get into. I no, 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 I, I, I only paused because I was trying to decide... Um, if and what I wanted to say on on the subject. Here's the thing is, you know, uh, to give the, the listeners a little peek behind the curtain, you know, Mike and I haven't really talked much about what we're going to or, or how we're going to address uh, talking about the crisis after we're done covering the crisis as far as, you know, do we want to, you know, do we want to talk the future kind of thing? And it would be, it would be my vote to steer well clear of post-crisis crisis type events with maybe the poss- possible exception of zero hour which while it had its flaws and i had my issues with it i think was one of the slightly more worthy of being called a sequel to crisis crisis sequels whereas everything past that point i'm sorry i'm just going to call a spade a spade i think was crap so you know, Mike, you said something brilliant. I, I think it was during our first crisis episode. Some something came up. I, I forget what it was, but something that could lead us down dark paths. And you just said, "Look, this is a celebration of this event, and it's not that kind of party." 
And I like that. I, I, that's the perfect sentiment for this because you know me and, and my feelings on current DC and the very subject of the new 52 makes my blood pressure go up. <laughs> so, I mean, I could go on a, on a tirade and, and this has nothing to do with Dale, you know, and, and what he wrote. He just, you know, he just happens to bring up the subject. I have very strong feelings on that subject. Those feelings are not good feelings. So I would rather just keep with that spirit of this is a celebration of the 30th anniversary of, of Crisis on Infinite Earths. We, we've reached this point organically in the show that we're doing. I, I'd rather not spoil that party by, by, you know, getting drunk and rowdy, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, you know, I, it just comes down to one thing is that I, I respect the points that Dale brings up. I don't necessarily agree with them. I have heard these points made before that... All you know, like for guys like me that were around for crisis that hold crisis, you know, put it on a pedestal. Yet we don't have much of an opinion of the new Fifty Two. Is that all oh, you guys are failing to see? It's it's all the same thing all over. Well, I argue that rather vehemently. I don't think it's the same thing all over again because I do think that crisis, while. Uh, you know, there's that issue that keeps coming up of do we agree with with Wolfman's reasonings for the crisis or do we not? Um, ultimately, I, I think that crisis felt organic in the in the way that it happened, whereas I don't think the new Fifty Two felt that way at all. I, I felt I, I think that feels very kind of forced on the universe, if you know what I mean, as opposed to this is where it's all been building to which was always the feel I had of, of the original crisis, if, if that makes any sense. But that, yeah. that's, a, that's about as deep as I really want to get into it. And I wasn't trying to, to use this as a, a chance to, to kind of bash the New 52, because that's, exactly. that, yeah. that, 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 that wasn't my intent. And if it came off to that to anybody, I'd No, no, apologize. no, no, I, I don't think it did. Um, I really don't. But I want to keep it from being yeah, that as well. Yeah, you but know? I, just, I wanted to address the specific comments that Dale made and just leave it at that and not use that because because you know it's it's really easy and 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 we fell prey to this many times of somebody writes in about something in an email and then you and i are just off you know you know just you know tearing something a a a new orifice but uh yeah which normally i'm all for that i'll I'll be honest with you i you know that a lot of those uh tangents and you know something that may have even led to a tirade or a rant some of those have been some of the more popular elements those are the things that when you talk to people about you know what do you like about the show those are the things that come up well i liked when this came up and became a thing well that's great however you know this is a very at least it should be a a very focused Mm -hmm. set of shows and i and so i want to keep it that way i don't want us to get off on this thing i i really how do I want to put this? I, I don't want to stymie anybody in the in the feedback that they want to send into the show, yeah. or the, or the emails that they want to send to the show. By by no means do I want to censor anybody. But at the same rate, I, I would ask that you know we just keep it relevant to what we're talking about. I really don't want to get into a discussion of the other post Crisis yeah. on Infinite Earths crises because I I don't feel like they're relevant. I mean, there's a very specific reason why at least from from my half of what i'm bringing to this i haven't mentioned those others because i I, to me they don't exist in my personal continuity of dc you know the the post dc or excuse me the post crisis world pretty much ends uh you know just prior to uh god what year was it mike 
2005. For, yeah, about, that, about 2005. That's it. Because I don't even like to mention that event. You know what I mean? I don't even like to give it a name. So that that's just kind of where I'm at for all this. I, I consider that whole span of time the post-crisis world. And, and that's that world that, that I still kind of wish was out there, you know, that, that we were still living in with, with DC. So I don't know if any of that made any sense. That's kind of where I'm at. I think that's a, I I think it's a, I think it's a a good sentiment and a good way to kind of count. We got a couple more emails, but we're going to save those for next time because we want to get into the, we want to get into the main event here. The meat and potatoes. Though I I would like to, to thank Diane Regina for writing in. Um, <laughs> says hello. My name is Regina. I am a girl. No, I am girl. Excuse me. I am girl. I am I, girl. Hear me roar. <laughs> I will be happy if you can reply me because I have something to discuss with you and also send my pictures to you. Okay. Ooh. Thanks. Yours from Regina. So, Did you send any samples? Uh, no. Which is probably for the best. So thank you, Regina, for for writing in and. Uh, Providing a moment of levity right here at the end of the, uh, <laughs> the feedback. So. Wait a minute. If it's if it's I am woman, hear me roar. Is it I am girl, hear, hear me mew? Shout. Uh. <laughs> I am baby, hear me cry. There we go. We got it all worked out. <laughs> well, I think this would probably be a good time to play a quick promo for one of the other many fine shows that are out there. And when we get back, folks, this is it. No no more preamble, no uh, metric yards of notes of how we got into it. We're getting, we're getting right back into the action with Crisis on Infinite Earths, number two. Play it. Come on. Play it loud. Play it loud. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy... The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And ten out! Three! Two! On the circus. <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy. True! I have come here to bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, oh. It's a super prize package worth $9,388. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go and now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Thank God, then, lucky he didn't kill him. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now, come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julia, you... I say shut up! It's a man-hole! A man-hole! 
truefreaks.com. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for a podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly, every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin. For the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived, and nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at mystarwarsstory.com. Welcome back. I am Scott Gardner. I am man. Also a man, I, I guess, is Michael Bailey, who's going to read the synopsis for the next time. Uh, based on that birthday card you once sent me, you <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, Scott, I'm going to say here right at the top of the top of this issue that, uh, screw it, we're going to stop, uh, we're going to stop talking about Crisis. We're going to track down every copy of this V comic. That's advertised <laughs> on the inside cover and talk about that. That has got to be like the blandest ad ever. It just says V and then behind it in the, big white letters, the comic book. Okay. <laughs> that's not, it's one of those things that if they did send a promo poster to, to, to stores, it's the one that there's like a thousand of on eBay for like a dollar a piece. Right. Cares. But we are getting into, and I'm really excited to say this, we are getting into crisis on info. Oh, Sorry, I, I I looked at my notes and I realized that we we've we failed to do uh, something that we kind of wanted to do at the beginning of the episode, but we'll do it right here. Uh, we wanted to send some well wishes to the creators on this series. Yes, uh, Marv Wolfman ha- recently uh, either broke or cracked a hip, uh, and uh, I follow him on Facebook, and apparently he had a little bit of a setback, but he's doing a bit better now. Uh, George Perez recently had eye surgery, but apparently that's uh, that's led to him being able to drive without glasses for the first time. And uh, Len Wein had bypass surgery recently, too. So we wanted to send our, our warm wishes and get well soons and all that uh, to those men, because really, without them, we don't have a show, in all honesty. Mm-hmm. So, uh, get get better soon, guys! It sounds so. It sounds so fake to say it, but I really mean it. I mean, I really, I, I was really a, a little, a little disheartened to hear that they're they're having such health setbacks. But uh, it seems like everyone's doing fine. 
but we do hope uh, hope that they uh, recover in, in as speedy of a time as they can. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, number two, was released on February 7th, 1985. It has a May 1985 cover date. The credits on this bad boy, which you actually have to go through like eight, nine, ten pages of story to get to. Because uh, they, they, they cram a whole lot of gram into this one. Marv Wolfman, writer slash editor. Uh, George Perez, penciler. Dick Giordano, inker. John Costanza, letterer. Anthony Tallinn, colorist. You know, I've recently found out that he was married to Adrian Roy. Uh, the colorist on just about every, like, Batman book from the 70s and 80s. Hmm. Yeah, that was, that was uh, the, the late Adrian Roy, unfortunately. Uh, but, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, but I saw something on Facebook, and and uh, and I was just like, wow, that's that's really kind of interesting that the, the this, these names that you see so much of have a connection beyond just being credits in the comic books, right? Uh, the cover has the copy from Anthro to the Legion of Superheroes and beyond, and we have Superman of Earth Two, Dawnstar, Anthro, Anthro, Commandy. I really have to stop drinking so much before <laughs> uh, before the show. We have Commandy, Obsidian, Firebrand, Solovar, John Stewart, the Green Lantern, not the Daily Show host, and Firestorm fighting a shadow demon next to a giant golden tower. Yes, it's not the two-page spread that the last cover was, but this thing is freaking epic. You see the, uh, the Statue of Liberty all Planet of the Apes style in the mm-hmm. background. It's just a... It's a gorgeous cover. I I just love the love this thing to pieces. Did you have anything on the cover, or do you want to save it for? The I notes? did actually. Well, I, I mean, it's part of my notes, but I'll throw it out there. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the uh, what, the note that I had specifically was that I just I love this cover, especially how Perez snuck the Statue of Liberty <laughs> into the background. Because I, I don't know I don't know if your familiarity with uh, with the character of Commandy, and I, I'm going to be talking all about this a little bit later about my familiarity with him, but. Have you ever seen the cover to Commanding Number One? Mm-hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about. In yeah, that, and so. I, I just look at this as a further nod to that cover, which that cover, of course, is a nod to Planet of the Apes. So it's all all tied together. I, I think that's great. Alrighty, the dawn of man. Anthro, the world's first boy, crouches on a ridge not far from the village of the Bear People and waits. The young hunter jumps at just the right time and lands on the top of a woolly mammoth which is part of a herd of mammoths that is threatening Anthro's village. He is riding bucking bronco style as his mate, who is pregnant, and father, along with the rest of the village, watch anxiously. Anthro leads the pack away from the village, and the boy celebrates his victory but fails to notice a tree branch coming up and is smacked in the head for his troubles. For a moment, the stunned youth sees a futuristic city, but when the rest of the villagers come to check on him, the city is gone replaced once again with the vastness of nature. Anthro joins his mate and his fellow villagers as they head back home, but he wondered what happened to those mammoths. Earth, the 30th century. Legion of Superhero members Phantom Girl, Wildfire, Colossal Boy, Light Lass, and Chameleon Boy, with an assist by Brainiac 5, track the pack of mammoths which has somehow been transported to the future. They save the herd from execution at the hands of the science police, and just as Colossal Boy goes to herd them further, they disappear. The Legion Squad has little time to wonder what happened to them, as Brainiac 5 is all concerned about an antimatter wave that is approaching the Earth. 
The wave has enough energy to destroy not just the Earth, but the universe as well. Gotham City. The present, or 1985. The Joker has just finished killing off a rich man named Harold for the copyright to a bunch of old movies that he has plans to use the then-new computer coloring process on, proving what a villain the Joker really is by wanting to colorize old black-and-white movies. His victory is short-lived as the Batman bursts into the room, having figured out the clue the Joker left for some reason. The Joker hits the Dark Knight with some sticky foam and is about to execute his old enemy when an emaciated-looking Flash appears and asks for help. Joker cries foul and shoots at the image, but Batman, having recovered from the Joker's sticky mess, knocks the gun out of his hand before turning his attention to the ghostly Flash. As the Clown Prince makes a break for it, Batman watches as the Flash's form wastes away to bone, all the while begging for Batman to save the world which is dying around him. The image disappears, and Batman is left wondering, what is happening? Meanwhile, on the Monitor satellite, Psycho Pirate, Firebrand, Simon, Blue Beetle, Solovar, Geoforce, Firestorm, Killer Frost, Superman of Earth 2, Arion, Dr. Polaris, Obsidian, Cyborg, Dawnstar, and Green Lantern John Stewart Listen as the Monitor explains how their worlds are in danger of being wiped out like the thousands that fell before them. Firestorm calls shenanigans, because as far as he knew, the Monitor was a bad guy. Simon agrees and holds a grudge against the Monitor for not dealing weapons to him. As Lila checks on her weakened father figure, while at the same time having the burning desire to destroy him, Superman calls for cooler heads. According to Superman, if the Monitor is telling the truth... They can save their worlds. If he's lying, no power exists that can defeat them all. The Monitor warns that he is linked to all positive matter, and as their enemy grows stronger, he grows weaker. And if they fail, the Monitor will not be strong enough to prevent his foe from destroying all that exists. There is arguing with some of the heroes and villains wanting no part of this. Dr. Polaris suggests that they rush the Monitor while he is weakened, when suddenly the Harbinger appears again and asks them to aid them in their quest. In five crucial eras throughout time, the Monitor has planted certain devices powerful enough to stem the antimatter that threatens their world. These five eras coincide with heroes like the group the Monitor assembled, and as such, they are a focal point. They must protect those devices from the forces that seek to destroy reality and activate them when the time is right. Eventually, the heroes and villains agree, and they are sent on their missions, though Arion senses the darkness growing inside Harbinger. As Harbinger monitors where the heroes and villains have gone, she too feels the darkness and silently asks the monitor to forgive her, because even though he has been like a father to her, she now betrays him. On Oa... The Guardians of the Universe have their red robes in a twist because they have just now discovered the energy that threatens the universe, and they, being the Guardians of said universe, should have seen it coming sooner. Before they can do anything about it, a voice calls from the central battery, saying that it is too late. What began with them centuries ago ends with them now. There is a tremendous explosion, and the Guardians are all held in a stasis field. In Metropolis, on Earth-1, Superman joins Batman on the roof of the Daily Planet. The Dark Knight has called the Man of Steel to discuss what happened with the Flash, when suddenly Pariah appears, warns them of an impending danger, and then disappears. 
Batman explains that Pariah's warning was just like the Flash's and wonders what is going on here. Earth, the Great Disaster. Commandy, the last boy on Earth, scales a giant tower that has suddenly appeared and is surprised by a shadow creature and nearly falls to his death. Superman of Earth 2 saves him and introduces the boy to Solovar, who Commandy mistakes for a villain, and Dawnstar. The shadow creatures attack in force and then flee just as suddenly. Dawnstar wants to chase them, but Solovar reminds her that they were brought here to protect the tower, and that should be their focus. Commandy just wants to know what the heck is going on. On the monitor satellite, Harbinger is shocked to discover that the Luther baby from Earth 3 has grown from a newborn to a toddler in a matter of hours. On Earth in ancient Atlantis, Arion, Obsidian, and Psychopirate guard the tower that has appeared there. Despite being warned not to use his abilities on anyone, the Psychopirate spots Pariah and makes the man laugh uncontrollably. Arion attacks the pirate, leading the villain to fill the populace of Atlantis with unreasoning fear. Arion goes to protect his people, and Obsidian protects Arion, but the whole thing becomes moot when the pirate is mysteriously transported away. He finds himself in a darkness as a voice calls out and says that he has need of the pirate. At first, the pirate is flippant, but when whatever summoned him causes his face to disappear, the pirate agrees to do whatever the voice commands. On the monitor satellite, he and Harbinger discuss the loss, with the monitor saying they have to investigate another avenue. He tells Lila to bring him the file on the new Dr. Light. Back in Atlantis, Pariah does his whole end-of-the-world shtick when the people of Atlantis notice a white energy cloud appearing in the sky. Pariah informs them that in a matter of hours, their worlds will die. Obsidian is in shock and cries out that the monitor lied to them. He lied! As one harbinger talks with a monitor on a satellite, another talks with the darkness that took the psychopirate. As the evil that threatens creation goes on and on about how his foe should have given up already and accepted the inevitable, the monitor thinks about how harbinger should hold on to the hope he knows she has, because the darkest moments are only hours away. Resist his temptation, because only through her, Pariah, and the child from Earth-3, and all their champions can the universes live and survive. Next issue, the Teen Titans, the Outsiders, the Haunted Tank, Sergeant Rock and Easy Company, Jonah Hex, Batlash, and many, many more. Hell yeah. Especially the Jonah Hex thing, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent job on the synopsis, sir. Excellent job, because these are not easy to write in any synopsis, (laughs) that's for sure. I often wonder if it'd be easier to just enact the whole damn thing out (laughs) rather than try to synopsize it, but that was a great job. Yeah. So what what are your feelings on this issue? Oh my goodness, where do I start? Well, overall, I mean, overall, I just, you know, come on. I love it. I love it. I love it. Love it. But uh, here's my specific notes on this one. Uh, again, love the cover on this one. Uh, you know, we talked about the Statue of Liberty and all that. Um, the only thing on this one, and I mean, you know, I have to hunt for things to, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Yes. But, you know, if, if there's any downside at all, um, I just, I wish the Shadow Demon didn't quite, you know, take up so much of the cover, but I mean, that's a minor, minor thing. I mean, you get a good look at all the heroes, and I, I just, I love the staging of it. I, I just, I love the way, you know, you've got this canted angle on the whole thing, and uh, I, I love this 
very, very eclectic mix of heroes uh, on the cover. I just think that's a lot of fun. This was my introduction to Anthro. Uh, I had no idea who he was before this. I'm not sure that I've ever seen him in anything else, to be honest with you. I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, this was I, I, definitely I have, my first. but we can't talk about it. So. Right. Well, yes, beyond that, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, yeah. But beyond that, uh, yeah, I can't recall if I've ever seen him in anything else. I'd be curious to, uh, you know, to check out his earlier adventures sometime. He came from showcase i want to say it was uh and uh one of these days i'd like to track that down and uh, and actually read that issue sometime just to you know to see what the whole deal was with it but essentially if i remember correctly i, I think he's called the first boy because he was the first crow magnet i think mm-hmm. is that right yeah. yeah i believe so i love that the mammoths march straight from prehistory right into the 30th century metropolis uh, that's just a cool concept to me just you know that idea that they they're the bridging mechanism in this opener and, and they literally walk from you know the dawn of man right into the 30th century of, of the legion of superheroes I, th- I think that's pretty cool um i love how perez draws the legion particularly phantom girl phantom girl i always even from when i was a a, a preteen, i always thought phantom girl was particularly sexy because here uh they're using uh the well it's it's kind of a, a mix really of the uh, like phantom girl has very much the mike grell era mm-hmm. costume on whereas the other ones have more of the latter day the keith giffen um outfits but i always from when i was a kid i always thought phantom girl was really sexy in that uh in that mike grell era costume uh, I, 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 not... I, would, I would hope that that phantom girl would look very attractive as drawn by perez because his model was his wife i wondered about that yeah. I, I wondered about that so you're not seeing it here in this issue, but one of the things I always liked uh, about her outfit was the um, the windows in the front of the outfit. You know, it was meant to be very futuristic, but of course, being created in the in the 70s, it's that future. It's that 70s prediction. Future, of the future. yeah. So I, I just I, I love that particular outfit. But yeah, he really makes it work on this uh, page six. You've got those uh, connected panels that are right underneath the first two panels of Brainiac 5. I I just love this transition piece. It's so subtle. You have the futuristic polybagged Earth on the left-hand side, and then it fades to the present-day Earth of July 1985 on the other side. I just love that. Because that future Earth in the Legion was encased in a protective shield. Yeah, I, I always thought that was really neat whenever they draw it like that. I always liked this flash sequence quite a bit. Somehow, it, it always had that same feel of ghostly appearances from like literature. You know, like when uh, Julius Caesar's ghost appeared in Julius Caesar, or like you know the, the ghost of Christmas, whatever from a Christmas Carol. It's just that portent of doom, mm-hmm. and I, I really like that. You know that he's illustrated very much that way here. Now, something that. Uh, has been you know kind of bugging me ever since the original first reading I, I ever had of this was this sense of familiarity this sense of man this reminds me of something but i just can't put my finger on it the the four panels where batman is pretty much nose to nose with the ghost of the flash 
and the Flash just dissolves, like like falls to a skeleton and then falls to dust right before Batman's eyes. And Batman even says, the Flash disintegrating before my eyes. I've always looked at that and gone, man, that, that seems so familiar to me. And I finally nailed down what it was, is on the cover of Detective Comics 408, it's a, a very famous cover by Neil Adams where the staging is very similar. It's not quite exact, but it's very, very similar. It's a four-panel layout of Batman holding Robin, and Robin does the same thing. He, he you know, just kind of dissolves to dust in front of Batman's eyes, and I think that's really cool. I, I wonder if it really is an intentional callback because it sure does look like it is but I don't have any definitive proof one way or the other that it really is. If it is, it's, it's subtle enough that it, it, you know, I think it's just really neat if it is a true callback to that. And I like how that sequence with the flash and, you know, you have the close up of Batman's eyes during going, dear God, what is happening? It all works as a very cinematic, like pre credits sequence. Because all of this with Anthro in the 30th century and Batman versus the Joker and then the Flash shows up, all of that is, you know, that's pages one through eight. And then at the bottom of page eight, you've got DC Comics proudly presents and you've got the credits. And then it goes into the beautiful two page splash on the next page where you've got the heroes all lined up and above them it just says Crisis on Infinite Earths. That is incredibly cinematic. I mean, you can you can hear... Like the movie, you know, the the theme, you know, if there were theme music, you can hear it swell up in the background. It, it feels like a movie. And now, you know, you and I have often said, and, and I think in, in some instances, we both kind of complained about when writers try to make, com- especially these days, everybody wants to make comics feel like they're a movie and try to write comics like a movie. And it, it gets it gets kind of bothersome because they are very different mediums. But this is Perez showing that, you know, while they are different mediums, you can borrow elements and, and really make it, give it that epic cinematic feel. And he does it to masterful effect, I think, uh, between those two pages. I think that's really uh, a nice transition piece. The Monitor says uh, the last universe, uh, that the last universe that they lost contained Earth 3. He says this on page 9. So. Maybe he was actually talking about the crime syndicate being those five super uh, super beings that he needed in the last issue. I remember we discussed that briefly about, you know, was that what he was really talking about? And I think I said, well, I think that could be argued. But then here he makes it very clear that, no, 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 Earth 3 was the last one to, to completely dissolve. So likely that was what he was talking about, I guess. All right, this was uh, a bit of a mystery to me. This This, unfortunately, is a bit future spoilery. But I have to bring it up here. There's the thing with Simon, where all of a sudden, out of kind of out of nowhere, he turns on the monitor. He says, uh, "You'll explain nothing, monitor. You turned on my request for weapons. Uh, you listened and refused my needs. I swore then I would destroy you." And then he tries to zap him with his mind blast. Now, as we're going to find out, Simon's been actually living on the satellite for something like three months now. So he's waited all this time to voice his grievances. Now he decides to attack the monitor for denying him weapons. It just that didn't quite make sense to me. Because am, am I right about that? Doesn't I, that I, I turn believe out to be that's the case? how it plays out. Yeah, I just thought that was kind of strange. 
on page 10, I love uh, everybody deferring to Superman. Even if they don't know who the hell he is, everybody defers to Superman. I just think that's really cool. Uh, page 11, the hero reactions from everybody, particularly from uh, from Solovar and Firebrand. But what's with Geoforce? Now, now he wants to leave. But a moment ago, it was he who said, uh, are you mad? Think, what if he's telling the truth? But all of a sudden here he says, I'm not convinced. I say we leave this instant. That was like a page ago. Maybe. He was just like, we have to hear him out. Maybe it was so, one of those things where he was just like, you know, like, well, let's hear him out. Here's him out. It's like, okay, I'm out of here. I, yep. I, I, <laughs> I, I have not, I do not want your newsletter, sir. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, let's see. Also on page 11 here. Well, actually, this ties in more to the script, but I just thought it was interesting that if you look in the, uh, the companion book that comes with the crisis, uh, uh, absolute edition there's a lot more in there about the motivations of the monitor and about this selection process which was one of the things that's if you get a chance to actually read those scripts i, I like some of the insight it gives into this creative process and, and where uh, marv wolfman's mind was as he was coming up with all of this because this is one of those things that i think kind of fell through the cracks was explaining why these guys? Why these particular people that were chosen? And in the script, he, he does really address that, that it's not so much their powers, it's more of the dynamic that they would give working together with each other, the, the strengths and everything that they would bring. And he even makes, makes a mention of, I don't care about your moral compass. That's why there's a mixture of heroes and villains. It was more about what they bring to the table. And I liked that. And I thought it was very interesting also that he said that the selection was made via computer, which was at first I was like, well, wait a minute. Then why did you spend all this time observing if you're not going to be the final arbiter or the one that makes the decision? But then I thought about it and I thought, all right, so he's done all this monitoring. He's entered all this information so he's given the computer everything to work with and then letting the computer make like the logical decision, working, I guess. Working, working. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was interesting. You know, all of that is lost in this because he never does really address why these guys. Because remember last issue, you know, the first issue, Lila actually puts that question to him directly and he just skirts the issue. He never really does address her question of why these guys. And I know we had a lot of discussion on that as well. Uh, let's see here. Page 13. Oh, yes. Page 13. Now, I had no idea what the hell was going on here when I was a kid, but I do now. And it all goes back to a book that we've covered here on Tales some time ago, and I think that's cool. I don't want to spoil too much, so that's all I'll say here. But now having the complete picture, it just adds that ooh element into this. And I know, you know, right where we're headed with it. And I, I love that. That's a, that's a beautiful little callback. Very subtle. Page 14, Superman! I love this. Superman shows up. Now, I think, and I thought this was when I was a kid, I think this is a pretty ballsy move to wait till page 14 of the second issue of your big, uni- you know, multiverse-spanning epic for the big guy to show up. But when he shows up, it's pretty damn awesome. I think that's great. I love, love, love panel three. That great perspective shot of him just kind of floating into the uh, to the Daily Planet roof. I think that's great. I love that shot. 
Uh, it's nice to see Batman come to Metropolis, although Superman could have much more easily have come to Gotham. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of strange. Well, remember, at uh, this point, they're right across the river from each other. True, but still, I mean, you know, Batman's got to, you know, he's got to get the bat, co- you know, the bat plane out and have <laughs> Alfred dust it off and, you know. You know that or he, like, rode the and... train into town and he has his Batman <laughs> costume <laughs> in, a, in a briefcase and... <laughs> like walk, you know, gets off the subway, walks to the Daily Planet building, hits the little button on the elevator, <laughs> rides to the top, finds a right. secluded spot, changes into his Batman costume. These are exactly. the deleted scenes that we will never see. Exactly, you know, bitching the whole oh, Jesus Christ, I'm Batman. I shouldn't have <laughs> I'm <come> Batman. <laughs> Superman could be there in a nanosecond. You know, it's just I just thought it was kind of funny. I love love the little look between superman and batman it's in those three yeah. panels above where pariah is doing his whole i'm pariah and i have to cry about everything thing but it's just a subtle little look between the two of them and i think that's okay. in his powers and weapons and his who's who entry is that, you know? <laughs> super crying yes yeah, super crying and super whining <laughs> super whining you know, not to get on a soapbox, and I, and I don't want to tangent this off into something we, I know that both of us could really go on a tear about, but I miss them being best friends. Mm-hmm. I just, I, you know, I, when it first came along post-crisis that all of a sudden now that, you know, well, you know, actually they should be adversaries, and it makes a lot more sense for them to be on opposite. That was such a novelty at the time that it was fun for a while. But looking back at this again, and, and just that that one little subtle panel of them exchanging that look, just I got so wistful about it. I was like, yes, this, well, to, this is my, you know, I, I like them better as best friends. To be fair, they're back to being friends in the comics. Present day, you mean? Yeah, present day. That's cool. Well, I mean, you know, there was that slow process as well in the in the post-crisis world. You know, it took a long time, but eventually they became really, I don't know if they were ever best friends necessarily but they you know they did eventually become friends again so i mean we kind of we we have kind of gotten best of both worlds you know we've we've had them as besties we've had them as you know adversaries so i mean we've gotten to see both sides of it but coming you know full circle after 30 years back to this again i'm, I'm kind of back to that oh you know i just i like them as friends uh i love the panel of you know after pariah does his little fade away uh, just that shot of of Batman, but I I, I like what Batman saying. He says the, he said the Earth was dying. That's what Flash said. It's just you know, something creepy about that. I really like that. Again, that sense of of foreboding. Page fifteen just makes me happy. You know, you've got the the Statue of Liberty snuck into the background again. There was a note in the original script from wolfman to perez you know giving him artistic notes where he just said you know he was talking about the tuning fork and he just said kirby eyes it and damn didn't he yeah i mean this is a very kirby you know that entire layout is it it just screams kirby but in the best way it it really fits with the feel of commandy's world now i definitely knew who commandy was i had met him on the first page of a torn and tattered coverless copy of Brave and the Bold number 120 where he was running from his li- for his life from a squad of gorillas on horseback led by Batman. It was this glorious splash page drawn by Jim Aparo. 
and I don't know where I had gotten it. It was, I don't know, it was a hand-me-down or something my mother had brought home from, you know, she used to work at a, at a paper mill, so she used to bring me home coverless comics all the time. So I think that's probably where it came from, but that's where I first met him. So I definitely knew who he was. Um, eventually, at one point, I had the entire Commandy series. The whole thing just fell into my lap as a very young collector just getting started and like a dumbass, I sold the whole thing off just because I didn't really, I, I was never a Kirby fan. I didn't appreciate it enough at the time and really wish I hadn't done that. The only issues I ever hung on to was I hung on to issue one just because, you know, it was the origin issue, but and I love the cover. Uh, and I held on to issue 29 because that was the issue that was, I guess you could arguably call it a Superman crossover, although Superman's not in it. It's where Commandy and his buddy can't remember his buddy's name super jim or whatever his name was they find ben boxer superman's that was it ben boxer thank you they find um superman's costume yeah and I, so it kind of gave i was on an episode of back to the bins where paul covered that one that was a fun issue mm-hmm. that was a really yeah. fun issue it i didn't is. mean to interrupt you stuff. i'm sorry it's just i no 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 i'm glad you remembered his name because i could not remember ben boxer's name to <laughs> save my life but yeah that was i i love that issue i i really did so i saved those two but i did have the whole series and i i've always regretted getting rid of it because now it's it's hard to to find those on the cheap but uh again you know number one had that awesome planet of the apes homage cover that i always liked so much and uh and you know 29 being that superman issue so I had always thought that this sequence here where Commandy recognizes Superman came from that issue from, you know, from number 29, because off the top of my head, I, I never recalled a time where Commandy and Superman had actually met each other. But in doing my homework for this, I, I decided to be much more thorough than just relying on my memory. So I looked it up. Sure enough, they had actually met in DC Comics Presents number 64, which was one of the few issues that's actually missing from my collection. I, I just didn't know it existed. So I tracked it down. I read it. It was actually pretty damn good. I really enjoyed it a lot. So that was about a year and a half or so, I think, before this story. So he had met, as the Earth 2 Superman here says, oh, you must have met my counterpart on Earth 1. Well, yes, that, that was the one that he had actually met. But it was just cool does it go meet. Earth 1? What are you talking huh? about? <laughs> exactly. Well, I love, too, this, this is one of my favorite parts where, you know, Commandy falls and Earth 2 Superman catches him and, and Commandy goes, Superman? He's a, and Super, Earth 2 Superman says, how do you, ah, of course, you've met my Earth 1 counterpart. And then he says the next line, it's a small world. And I'm just like, ah. They should sing it together. But anyway, <laughs> I love the irony of Commandy and Solovar, whose name continues to be misspelled in this issue. I love the idea of them becoming fast friends. And I, I wonder if this is the entire reason why Solovar was even part of this team in the first place was, you know, to again, have that little like Planet of the Apes type of type of moment between the two of them. But I just think that's cool that, you know, in Commandy's world, much like Planet of the Apes world, you know, the, the gorillas are not good people. They're not good guys. But here you've got Solovar, who's like the nicest guy. And they, they kind of hit it off right away. I thought that was really cool. Page 18, after seeing the whole rapid aging baby thing play out here in crisis i i never needed to see this again <laughs> you know little did i know that it was already a very well-worn trope of science fiction when this was published but you know i would see this again and again and again in years to come and 
to me, this was kind of, this was the first time. So this, to, in my mind, for many years, well, this is where it all came from. Well, no, it's not. This has been done and done and done. So, so, even well so you before read this, this before Search for Spock? Uh, well, no. No, you know, you're right. Yeah, Search for Spock would have done it as well. I hadn't even thought of that. Uh, but there were stories that had done it well before this, like uh, you know when when uh, Carol Danvers gave birth to her boyfriend, and you know all this weird, uh, yeah. all this other <laughs> crazy shit that happened. But I hadn't read that yet, so I didn't know that that even existed. You know, so to me, this was like kind of that first time. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I had entirely forgotten about Search for Spock. You know, what I was actually thinking of was another time in Star Trek, the one where uh, where Deanna Troy gives birth to you know the little alien baby that you know grows to adulthood like by the end of the the episode, or grows to I, I think he grows to like preteen age actually. But anyway, yeah, like I said, never needed to see it again after seeing it here. So page nineteen has always confused me. So you've got Arion, uh, Obsidian Psychopirate arriving in ancient atlantis and the tuning fork is already there now here's the thing i've always wondered is the tuning fork just happens to be sitting in like an empty space that was already present in atlantis which would be really weird or has it like somehow like mystically shoved aside these buildings Hmm. to place it you know what i mean because if you look at it it looks like it's an organic part of the city but it can't be because it's placed there by the I monitor. If that's just a coloring thing. But that would mean that essentially there was like a big hole in the middle of the city that was just like the perfect size for the tuning fork when, well, when I, the monitor planted it there. I would assume that the monitor, you know, like did you know, like did some surveying and stuff and. You know, <laughs> Now I see him with one of those tripod yeah. things, you know, standing on a hill. You know, he's got his measuring tape. You know, and he's, he's just trying to figure it out. And Lila's, his slide rule. Lila's in her like you know her 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 gun mall outfit with the with her with her cleavage showing, and he's got you know got like a clipboard and monitor is is like in his monitor outfit, but he's got a hard hat on. Um, <laughs> they've got traffic in Atlantis all snarled up on the freeway. Hey, 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 hey. We have the permits. We're allowed to be here. <laughs> I've got Lila. She's just leaning on a shovel as drivers are driving by honking at her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Now, page 20, you know, as much as I don't care for Pariah, never really cared for this character, I actually have always liked this sequence, though, because I've always wondered about the what-ifs of this. Because you've got Psycho Pirate making Pariah start laughing, and he makes the creepiest face when he's laughing. And then at the bottom of the page, he's holding up his hand as he's as he's laughing. He's trying to stop himself. So he says, "You don't know what you're doing. Stop it!" And I was always a little confused by where he gets zapped here. Now, as you know, reading this again as an adult, I understand that it's Arion that zapped him. But as a kid, I can always remember thinking that maybe Pariah had somehow zapped yeah. him. So this m- makes me think, you know, Pariah is, is warning him, saying, you don't know what you're doing, stop it. And I'm thinking, okay, so so what is the what else here? You know, the, or the or else. If he doesn't make him stop laughing, what, what could happen? What are the side effects of making Pariah laugh? You know, is something bad going to happen? We never... We never get to discover that. I think that could have actually made him a more interesting character if you'd learn that you know, making him laugh would, would have some sort of dire consequences, but we never get that. Again, 
this is the most Arion I've ever read. So I, you know, I'm not all that clear on exactly what goes on here in this sequence as far as, you know, who the different people are and everything. But I do like his little wigging out moment I thought was pretty cool. Uh, Dr. Light. Now, didn't Wolfman or somebody have big plans for this character? Because it doesn't, it never really worked out that way. I, I know she comes I along and... Hmm? I think he did. I think he probably had plans beyond crisis and she just never really went went anywhere went anywhere right Uh, i thought it was interesting that uh according to the script she was originally supposed to debut this issue and she was actually going to be a black woman which you know turns out to be different you know when we actually do uh, end up meeting her also in the script i thought it was interesting in this sequence on page 22 that wolfman gives the villain's name and there's a little note to Perez that says, a better name will be given him, I promise, but that better name never comes. The name he gives in the script does end up being the final name of the villain. I, I thought that was rather interesting. That, believe it or not, is pretty much all I've got on this as far as my notes. Um, my my only criticism, and again, it is a minor one, I think this is one of the weaker endings of any of the single issues of this, but still, I mean, it, it's an exciting issue. It's a lot of fun. I love again the uh, the very eclectic mix on the teams, and uh, it, it's just it's exciting. It's you know just it's working its way towards towards bigger and better things, and of course I love the next issue blurb because even as a kid not knowing who everybody was because Batlash, spoiler for next issue, but I think that first panel of him being tossed out of the bar, I think that was my first exposure to Batlash ever. So I, you know, I remember reading, getting to the end of this issue when I bought it off the stands as a kid and being like, Bat-Lash? And thinking it had to do with, like, the Batman family, you know? And thinking, was that the name of the dog? You know? I had no idea who Bat-Lash was, so. (laughs) But I just, I love it. I'm so excited to to get to issue three. Issue three is, uh, hands down, one of my absolute favorite issues of the entire series for a number of of reasons that uh, we'll discuss next time around. What do you got on this one, Mike? Well, uh, first up, a confession. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been well over 20 <laughs> years since my last confession. Uh, I said last time that I had never read this all in order, and that is a lie. <gasps> it is a Liar! Dun-dun-dun! <laughs> but uh, what That's I... That's going to be the header on this episode. Mike lied! <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what I'm talking about is I, I had said I never read the thing all the way through that i'd read it in bits and pieces but i had forgotten that years ago this is about it was about 2000 i think late 1999 2000 i'd finally completed my collection of all-star squadron and Mm -hmm. i had uh decided i'm just gonna sit there and read through all of my issues of all-star comics and then all-star squadron and infinity incorporated and uh, young all stars as they as they happen basically you know like in chronological order and just because of what I wanted to do at the time and since I I, I I tend to do this from time to time as I get these large reading projects together I started throwing in other titles and one of the titles I threw in was Firestorm mm-hmm. and when I got to the issues that were around the crisis I'm like all of these issues cross over with the crisis I'm just going to throw that in there as well. So as I went through the months of Firestorm and All-Star Squadron 
and Infinity Incorporated and all that, I was reading Crisis as well. Which is actually really cool, because it gave me... Because the Firestorm issues especially give you kind of an insight into the whole Firestorm angle of this. And I think Jerry mm-hmm. Conway did a great job of fleshing out his involvement with the Crisis and Firehawk's involvement. So, uh, yeah, mea culpa, mea culpa, I, I was wrong. And I, and I know that, <laughs> at least for one other person, they're like... What? Like suddenly I say that all the minions from Despicable Me start freaking out. So uh, I like you. I like this cover. Uh, the, the 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 Statue of Liberty in the back is uh, is very is kind of amusing. My only problem with it is that the image of the Shadow Demon is really obscured by the logos. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the 50th anniversary masthead and by the logo of Crisis itself. So you kind of have to turn it on its side to figure out what they're fighting. But that doesn't change right. that everyone else looks awesome. So this was not my... when I read By the time I read this issue, it was not my first uh, interaction with Anthro. That was who's who. Uh, but I really like this sequence. Uh, there's a lot of neat character beats that Wolfman throws into this sequence. Like, you have, uh... You have, uh, Anthro's father going, Aye, Embra, your husband fails, we'll all die. He's your son too, Nian, and the father of your grandchild-to-be. And Anthro hasn't failed yet. And then two panels later, after he's... It looks like the tide is turning. Look, I told you, Nian, your husband... My husband succeed. Your husband, remember, he's my son too. So... <laughs> Uh, and, and we find out that uh, Anthro is a bit of a sexist pig. Uh, you know, he's he's talking about how the village will react when he returns home. Uh, you know, it's like, they'll all serve my favorite foods. What stories I'll tell my son to be. And it will be a son. Embra would never have a shudder daughter, would she? So, not knowing how genetics works. And the fact that it's, it's the male that decides. The Legion sequence is is fun. I didn't know that the science police were so uh, cold-blooded that they were just going to wipe these things out. <laughs> you would think that it being the future, they would have, like, containment stuff and such. But uh, I like the Colossal Boy grows, you know, enlarges himself. There's no way of saying that without it sounding like a... Uh, <laughs> like, 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 like Colossal Boy is a walking Viagra commercial. But... Um, <laughs> But you, you ever, you ever like your your dogs or your cats or whatever are freaking out, and you 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 lean down to take care of the situation, and suddenly they stop doing whatever they're doing. Right. It's just like, oh crap! That that's what happens here on page five. Uh, page six. Here is something that I don't think younger readers, and I'm not saying that in a patronizing way. I'm saying that in a context sort of way, because uh, I you know I talk to a lot of uh, you know in my work. Because most of the people you hire for part-time help are, like, in their late teens and early 20s. You start getting a sense of what the next generation is going to be like, because you are no longer that next generation. So I don't think people would understand, uh, who are reading this for the first time that are younger, would understand the big deal that was colorization back in the 80s. I don't... It sort of dates the scene, but I don't care, you know? Because the Joker's big plan is he wants he's killed this guy to basically steal all the copyrights to the old films, and then he's going to make millions colorizing them, which is 
Which is a pretty involved and far-reaching plan uh, for the Joker. I'm, I'm kind of impressed by it. But, man, I remember people freaking out over the color... Because it was Ted Turner. Oh, yeah. That was wanting yeah. to colorize everything. And, you know, you even had George Lucas going before Congress and basically saying, you know, these films are our heritage and changing them, you know, changes that heritage. Uh, insert whatever diatribe you want to go on about George Lucas right there, but still. Right. Um so it's kind of funny that we get all of that. We get the very superpowers-ish uh, Joker. So this was just like the action figure almost, except with the trench coat. Perez draws such a gorgeous Batman. Oh, mm-hmm. Lord. I mean, it's like Batman in his cape. Because the thing is constantly swirling around him. Just such a classic look. On page 7, I love the swirling doom behind the Flash. Yeah. As he's standing there. It's a really great um, great effect. I, I would have preferred not having Batman, Joker fill Batman or cover Batman with a bunch of white goo. But, you know, we're <laughs> not going to do much there. So, <laughs> that, that, that's a cheap joke. Uh, page 8, I love as the Joker's firing. Little flags are, fa- are flying out of the, the gun that he's using. Right. Uh, and the shot in that third panel of Batman's cape kind of swirling around him is so badass. God, such a beautiful image. Uh, page 10, love that the Earth 2 Superman's taking charge. Like you, I like the fact that it's him who kind of steps up and says, you know, if he's telling the truth, we'll save our worlds. And if he's lying, we're going to just kick his ass. Yep. But I love that in typical Perez fashion, in the panel before that, Superman looks like, not like he's put on a pound or two, but he's physically different from the Earth One Superman. Right. Yeah. You know, he's beefier. Yeah. yeah. There, there's. It's. It's. It's like a. Like he's a little older. So, older men when they are are still in shape, kind of take on a different look, a little different than their younger counterparts. What I love, and we'll continue saying this, so get used to it, folks, is the detail he puts on the cuff of Superman's shirt. Mm-hmm. It looks it's it looks like the Kirk Allen Superman costume from the serials. Page eleven. I love the str- the the series of panels where you know it's just face shots of everybody. It's almost like they're all standing together, but not quite. Uh, it's it's right. just a it's just a really cool, uh, cool shot. And I guess Perez. This was before Perez got the note that uh, John Stewart didn't wear his mask. Because he's wearing his mask during this entire uh, entire sequence. I want to say that they end up addressing that in the crossover issues, but I could be wrong. I think they do. I think I think there is a note. We'll get to it eventually, obviously. So, Uh, page thirteen. I love that Perez, like most of his predecessors, draws the Guardians to look like Julius Schwartz. Which is just funny. And like you, now that I know the whole story, now now that Paul Harvey has filled me in on the rest of the... God, wouldn't it be cool to get... I know he's dead, but wouldn't it have been cool to get Paul Harvey to like, you know, talk about comic books? And, to and, be the narrator. Yeah, yeah. that'd be great. Um, Perez's Earth One Superman of this time was... It always felt like it should have been the definitive version of the Superman in the early 80s. Uh, and I know that that goes against Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, 
But there was something about when Perez started drawing JLA and the way he drew Superman. It always felt like this is how it should be. This should be the new model. You know, it's funny you say that because that's exactly what I was thinking when you when you first said about him. You know, essentially being the model is. I I think that's why I always cherished it so much when Perez as Superman would show up because, to my memory. There's only one time that Superman ever showed up in New Teen Titans, and it was uh, the precursor of the story where they went off to uh, Coriander's world to battle her sister. In the beginning of one of the issues, I want to say it's number 24, but don't hold me to it, but in the beginning of that issue, you open it up, and the splash page is the Titans following behind superman and robin as they're conversing and 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 robin's essentially saying we came to you because we need to borrow a spaceship or something to that effect and superman is saying you know gee i'd I'd love to help you but i'm actually at half power right now because this was at the time where he had been split into two physical beings and i always loved that because those little glimpses to me were like you know, you had whatever was happening in action and Superman, you know, by whatever artists were working on him at the time. You had whatever was happening in, in DC Comics Presents by whoever was working on that and World's Finest and Justice League and all these other places. But when you saw, like you said, you saw Superman in Justice League by Perez or you saw Superman, you know, like what I'm saying when he appeared in, in New Teen Science, that to me is like, here's what he really looks like. You know, you're seeing him in these other titles, and they're great, and they're they're doing their own thing, and and they're telling the story of his day to day life. But here's what he really looks like, and I, I love <laughs> that because I I agree with you. I think that uh, Perez's Superman at this time was more of how I wanted Superman to look. You know, I I think of you know again I'm I'm risking the wrath of the of the Kurt Swan people, but I, I look at Kurt Swan's Superman. And I see Kurt Swan's Superman very much like the Superman that you pointed out back on page 10, where he's more middle-aged, he's a little beefier, you know, he, he's everybody's dad superhero. Yeah. Whereas my Superman, and the Superman that I, I always ached for during this time, was more the way Perez is drawing him, where he's a young man. You know, he's in his, you know, late 20s, early 30s. He He's, he's tall, he's, you know, got the physique, he's very... He's not thin, but you know what I mean. He's not be. He's not got the barrel chest either. And, and I, I just, I love his depiction of Superman. And uh, when when he shows up, I think it's number next issue where he shows up and he's side by side with the Titans again. Just love it, you know. I, I love it because he uh, he 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 looks like a young. Ma- he he's it, what Paris is doing is he's he's doing a perfect middle of the road. Because he's not an old guy, but he's not young either. He's not super boy. Yeah. So you can see where the other heroes look up to him like he's been around. He's the veteran hero of his world, but he's not an old man. And, and I like that. I mean, that's a very careful balancing act to have to do. The, uh, the, the, the little character beat, though, that I like on page 14 is bat, you know Superman thinking as he's flying to the Daily Planet. Batman said it was urgent. He's certainly not one to exaggerate. And there was fear in his voice. Something I've definitely not heard before. And it's just like, okay, if Batman's freaked out, you know, there, there, there's something 
there's something really rotten in Denmark. But no, right. it's just, and, and, and I don't want it to seem like I'm trying to, to hold Perez like, you know, they all should have just bowed down to his version of the character. Because like I said, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, was the merchandising Superman. So if you bought like a Super Mario's mm-hmm. figure, that's the Superman but he was a younger-looking Superman. And Neil Adams, even, when right. he drew the covers in the odd issue of Superman, he'd do his little quirks to make him look younger. Like, by in the 70s, he had a little bit of sideburns going on. Mm-hmm. Which was an interesting... Uh, which was an interesting visual look for Superman. And, 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 and as I've said a thousand times in the past, and I'll say a thousand times in the future, you know, Kurt Swan is a brilliant artist. It's just not what the audience of the early 80s needed from that character so you know it it doesn't take away anything from his talent but there's a time where you kind of have to shuffle off the stage a little bit so well you know i i I think you know i think what you're trying to say and i I completely agree with you is I, i think very much that that perez and garcia lopez and adams they were all drawing the same superman Whereas you had like Kirk Swan, uh, Kurt Swan, and Murphy Anderson, and you know the older guys, Al Plastino and um, Kurt Schaffenberger, you know, Ross Andrew, Kurt Schaffenberger, they were all drawing the same Superman to a, to a certain degree. So they were all drawing the more you know the more mature, the older, the more barrel chested, you know, the veteran superhero Superman. Whereas uh, you know the other guys were you know they were trying to I hate to use the word modernize because that's become such a thing yeah you know, such a catchphrase but they were they were kind of modernizing Superman and just making him uh, younger more more physically uh, physically dyna- you know he just looked more dynamic he he looked more super in a way I, I don't know it's it's hard to put a finger on but I I definitely like uh, Perez's uh, take on Superman. I always have. I've always uh, been been really taken with with his depiction of Superman. Uh, page seventeen. It's it's a minor note, but I love the shot, the second panel of Superman blasting the Shadow Demon with his heat vision. Mm-hmm. It just looks it just looks awesome. <laughs> Perez is opening up. Yeah. yeah, Perez had that wide field heat vision thing going. He would do that in the post crisis too. In fact, I think he was. He may not have been the first one because Byrne established that there weren't lasers coming out of his eyes. It was he was it was basically pyrokinetic, so he could look at an object and make it heat up. Whereas when when Perez came on after Exile, right, they, he started opening up with the laser blast heat vision again, and Jurgens right. would follow suit. No, I was going to back you up. I think you're right. I think other than that story in I want to say it was Superman Volume Two Number. 10 i think the one where luther is secretly maxing out superman's powers other than that one i don't think burn ever drew the laser vision nope whereas as soon as he was off the title and perez came in i think perez did bring it back which i was fine with because i I loved the burn idea that it was more of pyrokinesis and and he would stare at something and his eyes would go black and and he would set things on fire i liked that i thought that was a very unique take and i really enjoyed it however you know having been a a superman fan you know pre-crisis i came to miss the laser vision you know the heat the true heat vision with the beams because of course i was always a huge fan of you know the movie superman 2 and geeked out so much in the theater when he used his heat vision for the first time, I was like, holy shit, heat vision, you know? So I always, I like seeing that in the comics, you know? 
And this, to me, is a depiction of, you know, because I was always used to it being like laser beams. You know, so, you know, there were thin streaks right from his pupils. And so when you saw it, like he's using it here on page 17, like you're pointing out, this is Superman heat vision unleashed. He's using it almost like like Cyclops, Cyclops's optic blast, yep. where it's like it's a, it's a whole ray coming out of his face. You know, I love that. I think that's cool. The uh, the sequence with uh, Psycho Pirate and Pariah, I love the body language that mm-hmm. uh, that Perez uses at the top of the 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 page, where you know Psycho Pirate is obviously just bored, and it just shows what a despicable human being he is. That he's basically manipulating Pariah because he's just got nothing better to do at the time. And that whole sequence where Arion has just basically had enough of his crap. Uh, it's just fantastic. Again, like you, I, I have very little to no experience with Arion. And just to uh, just to kind of see him, you know, be the heroic leader of Atlantis was kind of cool. Uh, page 23, I always liked... Oh, sorry, page 22. God, that dialogue is hard to read in the black. Mm-hmm. Um, the technology just was not there yet <laughs> for printing. It just... <laughs> It looks so much nicer in the hardcover and in the absolute. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. The uh, page twenty-three. I always loved the that one panel at the bottom where Obsidian is looking up, and you realize he's looking up at the White Death that's approaching them, and he's just like the Monitor lied. He lied just the despair on his face, and there's really not much of a face to be there. Um. On page uh, twenty-four, that that little head thing that that monitors hooked up in. Do you think he like used that to play Pac-Man before this all started? Like you know, like Harbinger comes up and he's got a game of Galaga going on. Wee 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 wee. Well, it's a little-known piece of trivia, but uh, Wayne Selinsky actually invented that <laughs> for him. <laughs> Oh, man. I always liked... You know, you said it's not the strongest of endings. I'll agree with that, because it's basically the monitor and the anti-monitor talking. But I do like the art on the last page of her face being kind of caught in the middle. Uh, I, I just... It's just a neat piece of art. And other than that, I really don't have anything on the issue itself. Um, it was... You know, I, I, I've in the past always had this feeling, and maybe it's because the last time I read it or whatever, uh, that, you know, the, the, the first quarter, the first chapter of Crisis, because it's really a three-chapter story, uh, you know, split into four issues apiece, was kind of a slog to get through. But man, when I read this to do the synopsis, well, when I read it to reread it and then read it to do the synopsis, it really hit me that... Crisis does not get enough credit for celebrating the DC universe. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because by its very design, it's breaking it down and rebuilding it. But through that, by having Anthro and Commandy and Solovar and Arion, you know, you're pulling all these. In the next issue, we're going to get into the Western and the World War II characters. You know, Wolfman is really pulling all these separate elements of the DC universe putting them all together as like a way of saying look how awesome all of this is and that's why I was so excited when I got to the end of this issue and got in I, I mean I immediately blitzed into the next one because uh, I'm reading them through either the hardcover or the absolute I'm doing my notes from the actual comics so 
you know, it's easier to just go to the next issue because I don't have to take something out of a bag when you're reading it in the collected edition. But no, it's just ah, oh, just amazing, just really awesome stuff. Uh, you you mentioned earlier that there are some uh, differences between the original outline and the plot uh, for the first issue. Uh, in the original outline, the scene with the Guardians went differently. They sense a great disturbance in the Force, and they not only send out a warning to the Corps, but they dispatch a Guardian to find the Monitor. Uh, and there was also going to be a scene with the Omega Men, because Marv Wolfman created the Omega Men, uh, as the Scions, uh, which is the alien, uh, an alien race, picks up the first ripples of the antimatter wall. Uh, and there's also a mention, it's really kind of weird, that the par- that Pariah will adapt to the Monitor's ever-changing needs. And that is also uh, dropped fairly, um, fairly soon. There were plans in this issue to show 1000 AD Europe with Simon, Firestorm, and Killer Frost. A scene in 1875 with Green Lantern, Cyborg, and Firebrand, as well as a World War II sequence with Blue Beetle, Geoforce, and Dr. Polaris. But those all get bumped to the next issue in the in the actual thing. The outline, like you said, had a vastly different ending, and I was just going to read it. Um, page uh, 21 in, in, the, outline, in the, uh, the plot. Cut to an Earth observatory. This is Earth 2. We see a black woman scientist peering through the huge telescope. Below her platform upon which she stands are several men. They are accusing her of stealing their work. She turns, a sneer on her face. She says something about why she did what she did and says no one will believe you. Indeed, your credentials will soon be exposed. You will be thrown out of here despite your work. They sputter, we'll get back at you. She says she doubts that. She has planted evidence which will convict them of several crimes. Nothing they can do will prove otherwise. My record is spotless. Now go before I have you tossed out of here. She turns back to the telescope, saying, you men built and funded this observatory, but it is now mine, and you discovered the new star. But I shall lay claim to that discovery. They leave, and she peers through the scope. We see the burning star through the lens. We cut, in the next page, we cut to to space to the star. There is a solar flare on the star's surface. A beam of solar light leaps off the flare, and we see it hit her through the telescope. She is surrounded by light. Back to Monitor's satellite, Lila asks what's going on. Monitor says, I have need of a new of a power, the power of Dr. Light. But Light has forsaken his costume, and his power and his stupidity would make him unusable in any event. Now, dear, But now, dear Lila, with my machines, I can create another Dr. Light, one far more powerful than her predefe- predecessor. And we cut back to Arion's time. Arion and Obsidian see the fraying appear. Arion calls out while firing bolts at it. The anti-monitor, the antimatter is coming. Obsidian backs off. We were too late. Arion says, "How can that be? We were sent here." Cut to, cut to space. We see the antimatter moving towards the Earth. Cut inside Monitor satellite as he says the others are not yet in place. The Earth has only hours to go before it is destroyed. We have to pray the others get there in time, otherwise all is doomed. And then it's just like on the last page, this this is kind of the interesting thing. Page 25, a montage. We see Arion, Obsidian, and Dr. Light Atlantis. We see Simon, Firestorm, Killer Frost, Viking Prince, Shining Knight, General Immortus, and the Demon in Europe during the year 3000. We see Cyborg, Green Lantern, and Firebrand, along with Jonah Hex, Batflash, and a few other DC Western characters in an old west town. 
We see Blue Beetle, Geoforce, and Dr. Polaris, Sergeant Rock, the Losers, and the Haunted Tank in the midst of World War II Berlin, and Dawnstar, Solovar, Golden Age, Superman, and Commandy in the future. In the center is the strange monitor machine. Along the bottom of the page is a blurb at last, one inch high, where we can see the list of the other characters to see next month. So, a little different in the plot stages. It's, 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 yeah. it's really cool to see how things changed. And it's almost like when you see uh, like deleted scenes and alternate endings on a DVD where you're like, wow, I'm glad they went with what they went in the theatrical cut. Because uh, I, I, I think that would have been a little too much to cram into this issue. So let's see here. It says, uh, we see Simon, Firestorm, Killer Frost, Viking Prince, Shining Knight, General Remortis, and the Demon in Europe during the year 1000. So that was the sequence that was dropped. Now Simon ends up going with uh, Geoforce and them when they go back to the Old West. Where does Firestorm and and Killer Frost go? I forget. Which team do they wind up I on? I forget too. And I, and I just read it. Um, I know a lot yeah. of his stuff is covered in his, in his crossover issues. That would have been interesting though because... Uh, you know, Viking just right there. Viking Prince and Shining Knight, two characters that I like a lot. It would have been interesting to to see them. General Mortis and the Demon, eh? Not so much. That's interesting. Yeah, what's I mean, what's neat is looking at that and reading that. You know, there's elements that stayed with Arion and Obsidian and Atlantis. That's you know, that's all still in there, but they dropped everything with with Doctor Light. Yeah, and and she she was basically a criminal. Uh, yeah. At, at first, it, it, it's it's kind of interesting that. I mean, she was never you know a nice character, so to speak. Uh, now she's kind of a bitch, uh, and uh, I like how they they played her that way because it kind of separated her from the superhero pack, where you know she's given her powers, she has to use her powers, but she doesn't have to be the nicest of people to get along with. Because we've all had people that we work with that are good at their job, but they're just personality grates on you. And, right. uh, you know, you, you, you appreciate what they bring to the table, but at the same time, you're like, God, I don't want to be stuck in the break room with this person. So, <laughs> which kind of is a funny image of Superman and Dr. Light, like eating their lunch together and him just trying to make conversation and her being a big bitch to Superman. Uh, <laughs> but she was basically, she, she was a thief. She, she stole, she manipulated events to get control of this in, in the in the original in the original uh, plot. Uh, you know, she she manipulated events and planted evidence. It's like God, she's kind of a scumbag. So, I'm glad they kind of dropped that. Uh, it would have been interesting if she would have remained a black woman. I wonder if they changed that because of what Rory Thomas was going to do with the new Doctor Midnight. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's an interesting idea. That could be. Because uh, we're gonna could very well be over the course of the crisis, we we are introduced to a new Doctor Midnight and a new Hour Man, and uh, a new Wildcat, and a new Wildcat. So, you know, just I don't know. May I? I could be wrong, but that's just that's just me spitballing here. Um, we didn't. Re- Did you have really anything else for the issue outside of the fact that it was reprinted in the hardcover and the softcover and the absolute? No, not really. Um. The only other note that I had was uh, was about those meanwhiles. Yep. I don't I don't know if we wanted to address that this time around. Or yeah, I mean, it, there really isn't anything in it that uh, 
that that like the the meanwhiles that we read in the All Star in the Infinity Incorporated issues that we covered in the last issue episode of Tales, it's just kind of neat to see for me to see the uh, him you know like you know 1985. Well, this is what the column says: 1985 promises to be our best year yet. I say with some confidence because I have worked for the last year with DC editorial staff to line up the best miniseries, annuals, maxi-series, and specials that uh, that we could possibly do. It's our 50th anniversary, and that means a lot to us. For the next 12 months, you're going to watch us salute the best of our past and prepare for the next 50 years. In the coming months, we'll be treated to revivals of such mainline characters such as Hawkman, starting next month, Aquaman, Zatanna, and the Red Tornado, and their own exciting miniseries. We'll have another Sword of the Atom special, and we'll bring you a Legion of Substitute Heroes special, and a Green Arrow special. Gil Kane and Jan Strand have a maxi-series in the offing, and Doug Minch has two very special projects planned for this year. But I didn't come here to talk about those. Not today. I'm here to talk about what I consider to be the centerpieces of our anniversary celebration. Crisis on Infinite Earths, and Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. These have been in both both been in the planning stages for nearly four years. They are finally being they are finally ready to be unleashed upon the public. This is why uh, just to put that on pause for a second. This is why I've always kind of called shenanigans on Secret Wars being called the first crossover, because DC was planning their thing far longer than Marvel put in the development of Secret Wars. Right, seem like we're gonna do this series because we have toys, and DC's like, that's okay. We're gonna we're gonna get it right. So you just you put out your cute little series. Eh. Oh, man, I shouldn't bash on Secret Wars, but it's so easy to do. <laughs> well, I I mean I don't want to bash on it, but again, I I just have to point out Secret Wars not a crossover. Yeah, that's that's the thing that annoys me when when people talk about Crisis and Secret Wars together. Because they are completely dissimilar projects, and I, I don't, I, you know, I object to Secret Wars getting that label of being a crossover because it's not. Crossovers to me, you know, tie into the universe as a whole and and have things that both go into it and come out of it. As we're going to see with with this crisis event, I mean, it will tie into many of the titles that were going on at the time. So we will get those crossover issues. There will, there will be effects in the larger universe. Beyond the fact that you had those lead-in stories in a lot of the, the titles at Marvel at the time where on the very last page, and it was the same last page for everybody, as I recall, you would have that stadium show up and the hero would go to the stadium and then they would disappear. And then they went off to Secret Wars. Well, the very next issue, Secret Wars is over and the hero's back again. That's not a crossover. No. It had no effect whatsoever on the ongoing title at the time. They skipped it. They just skipped a year ahead in time, essentially. So that to me, that you know, that's where I'll call shenanigans on the whole crossover thing. Now, the two things I wanted to point out about the rest of this meanwhile are one, when when Dick talks about crisis it pretty much lines up with what happens during the course of crisis. You know, he mentions that there's going to be permanent changes. New characters are going to be introduced. Old characters are going to either die or retire. The thing about who's who though, is what struck me 
He says, now, of course, you can't tell the players in a game this huge without a scorecard. And that's the, and that's the who's who. Primarily written and edited by Lynn, each issue will be 32 pages without ads, featuring all new artwork by the biggest names in the entire comics industry, and all the facts you need to know about who these people are, where they came from, and what they can do inside. The art is designed to show you the characters in and out of costume and using their unique abilities. When finished, the 24-issue series will stand as our Bible. Budding artists can refer to this as a guide to what our characters look like, while new talent writers will know the basics about why these people do the things they do. Len is saving the last few issues for updates so that changes occurring in the crisis will be reflected almost immediately. Um, they didn't wait to the last few issues to do that. No, no they did not. <laughs> uh, no, they did not. They, they even gave it two extra issues. Uh, to get everybody in, basically. So, because uh, uh, the, the, that first, those first couple issues were really a shakedown, uh, shakedown period, and you can kind of, you can kind of see it, especially if you listen to the Who's Who podcast hosted by Robin Shag. Uh, they do a good job of kind of breaking all that down. But yeah, as far as it serving for their Bible, yes and no, because it's like all of the stuff from the first twelve issues. A lot of that is rendered null and void by Crisis. So. It's kind of interesting. Well, here's the thing: is I, I know you were trying to to keep this succinct in here, but the portion of it that you skipped over is actually the portion of this that that I was always most focused on here, okay. because you know, as we as we said in in the first episode, you know, and I and I know you and I see this rather differently. You know, we talked about how I saw Crisis as something of a promise. And I think this is where I'm getting that from because I've really thought long and hard about that and I've tried to do my homework on this to to get myself back to that mindset and find where am I pulling that from? Where where does that feeling come from that there, there was a handshake and a promise about this whole thing? And I think a lot of it comes right here. So you've got a... Again, this is all written by Dick Giordano in the Meanwhile column, and he just he lays out the whole thing about what Crisis is and, and what its intentions are as far as he's concerned. He says, It all started when, when Marv Wolfman and Len Wein suggested we do a History of the DC Universe maxi-series to help straighten out some of the confusing continuity that has cropped up and is expected uh, from any creative company in business for 50 years. This project required a great deal of research, and we brought in fan Peter Sanderson to read just about every comic we have ever published. Bleary-eyed, Peter filled two gigantic notebooks with notes about our characters. From this, Len and Marv thought it would be easy to craft the maxi-series and have it all make sense. Well, it took a little time, uh, took a little more time than they anticipated, so we held uh, the entire project off until this year so it would coincide with this celebration, that being the 50th anniversary of DC. As they got more enthusiastic about the story, I got caught up in the creative flow and encouraged them to get even more daring. From that grew uh, what George Perez named Crisis on Infinite Earths. Marv created an enigmatic character, the Monitor, to be the catalyst, and since last year, actually longer since he first appeared back in uh, Teen Titans Annual Number Two, that's not true, by the way. He actually didn't he actually appear in? It's like eighteen. He appeared in Titans Twenty One. Twenty One, yeah, that's right, somewhere yeah. right there. This mysterious figure has popped up in almost all of our books. Meanwhile, the storyline grew and grew, and we knew this was becoming something too big for just one series. 
Thus, we created the Who's Who, which will act as the companion piece for this series. The first issue... Okay, I'm going to skip down a little bit on that. Uh, enough history. Let me tell you about this. Uh, these series. First off, The Crisis, written by Marv and penciled by George, is a major storyline that will affect each and every uh, one of our DC titles. It's a story about the parallel worlds concept, the one Julie Schwartz created in 1963 with his, infam- uh, with his famous, rather... <laughs> the flash of two worlds uh, and therefore it will bring into play everyone from the golden age superman to the legion of superheroes characters unseen in years will be seen once more and lots of confusing matters will be cleared up in the first issue alone we watch a familiar world fade from existence and see the monitor for the first time we'll be treated to the teaming of 15 uh, very unlikely characters plus the introduction of three new people each of whom will play a major role in the story and he goes on a little bit here about how much it's going to cost and how many issues it's going to run. As the ads say, worlds will live, worlds will die, and the DC Universe will never be the same. As I have reported in this space, we have been holding frequent meetings over the last year with the complete editorial staff to refine our ideas and get input from everyone who will be concerned with these uh, with these series. The meetings have continued and at times... Uh, we brought in people from our marketing and business departments to get immediate approval of proposed changes. This is a group effort. I want to read that again. This is a group effort and one I am very par- proud to take part in. Let me take a moment to discuss change. Many people, usually ardent fans of a series, resist change because they fear it will ruin what they have come to love. Yes, this can happen, but since every one of our writers and editors is working with Len, Marv, and me on the projects, we're making sure that the changes will be positive ones and they will be permanent ones. And that's in bold, by the way. The, and they will be permanent ones is in bold. While some characters will die or retire, others will come into the spotlight for the first time. People's allegiances will alter, as will powers and costumes. This isn't change for the sake of change, but the next step in the evolutionary process. And it's a step designed to make us viable for the next 50 years and beyond. And that's why I feel the way I feel about this series. And that's why I object to this idea that, ah, you know, it's, it's just another half-assed reboot like all the other half-assed reboots. You know, it's, even, you know, modern day things like New 52 is that no... Whether it's true or not, and I know you and I, Mike, are going to examine this in great detail, especially when we wrap up the series, we're going to take a long look back and see, you know, how much of this was just very similar to when Stan Lee would give us those bullpen bulletins where we all thought it was one big happy workplace and how much of it is fictional. To me, as a 16-year-old, not knowing the inner workings of DC Comics, not knowing or having personally met any of these people, I bought this hook, line, and sinker. This is Dick Giordano telling me how it's working behind the scenes, how it's all coming together, how well-placed and how well-thought it all was, and the ramifications of what was going to happen and where it was going to go in the future. And so I'm I'm hoping the reason I really wanted to go into this is that I'm hoping that this gives the listeners more of an understanding of, of me personally as a, a DC Comics fan of why I feel the way I feel about both this, of course, but also modern day DC, that this isn't just me, you know, 
standing on my lawn bitching at kids to get off of it. This is me saying, look, they, they made a promise here. You know, they, they laid this all out and said this is how it's going to be. And somewhere inside of me is still that 16-year-old going, well, but, but you lied to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's not to put a, a negative spin on it. I'm just saying that that's where this all comes from. Because I, I read this... And it, that really is the feeling I walk away from is is that promise being made. But also, uh, you know, it, it gets me even now knowing where everything goes. It gets me excited. I mean, this was an exciting time mm-hmm. for DC. There, there wasn't, you know, you would think when you when you're looking at being faced with the idea of of characters dying and, and, you know, your, your world changing radically, which is what this is saying is going to happen. You know, things are going to change. You know, we as, as fans and Giordano even addressed this, we don't readily embrace change, you know, no, but we even fear at change. that, we do, we, we honestly, we do. But even at that time, I was more excited and and looking forward to it much more than I was looking at it and going, oh, God, you know, and. Wow, you know, I, I, I wish. I wish I could get that feeling back, you know what I mean, to be excited when big changes were coming along. And I, you know, I, I've been really trying to, you know, do a self-examination of what what's the difference what is the difference? Is it just that I was 16 and I didn't know any better? Is it because I'm now 46 and I'm just, maybe I've become jaded. I, and I'm not sure. I mean, there's probably a little bit of that, but also I think it has to come down entirely to the, the way it was pulled off or, you know, the way these things are pulled off, but also the intent behind them. Because for good or ill, the reasons that crisis happened, whether you agree with them or whether you don't, and, I, and you know, you and I we have discussed that, and I'm sure we will continue to discuss that. But ultimately, I, I don't think there was ever ill intent behind the crisis. I don't think there was somebody that was actively looking at DC and going, ah, oh, you know, I, I, I don't like what this is, and I, I want to impose my will over it or something, and trying to force it into something that it's not. And in a lot of ways, you know, one of the things that's never discussed in any of these articles, and I've been noticing this, is sales. Now, I'm sure that somewhere somebody wanted to sell more comic books, but that's never brought to us, the reader, as as one of the reasons for this. Whereas I know more modern reboots or retoolings or whatever you want to call them have definitely put that right out there in the forefront that well you know we're just not selling the books the way we used to so we've got to we've got to scramble things up and we've got to make that change you know i don't know that that's the best foot to put forward you know that's also yes to to be fair it's the changing landscape of the uh, of the marketplace so right I'm i'm not disagreeing with you uh but once the trigger's pulled once, it's a lot easier to do it again. Whereas right. with Crisis, it was such a big deal because DC had never really done anything. like No comic book company had really just said, okay, here's our line in our sand. Here's the line in the sand. Here's our Rubicon. You know, we're crossing it. And after this, nothing will ever be the same. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, when the the crises of the aughts, basically, uh, started popping up, I guess at that point, because it had been done and the scab had been ripped off, it's easier then to kind of keep pulling the trigger on that sort of thing. You know, Marvel right. uh, has been getting a lot of, you know, good press from people that I know who have been reading it that love the books, uh, you know, with kind of rebooting, not rebooting, but re uh, relaunching their titles like once a year or so. So mm-hmm. you get a new Avengers and a new direction and all that. And the reason why it's easy for them to do that now is that they've done it so many times. So it's just it's just that easy. And now it looks like they're going to be doing their own cosmic reshuffling. Uh, and it's really yeah. funny to see that because everyone's like freaking out. And I'm like, is it because I'm a DC fan that this doesn't really affect me one way or the other? Or I don't see it as as a big deal? But then I start thinking that Marvel has never really done that before. So it is kind of a big deal, you know, for Marvel. So I guess for a Marvel fan who hasn't been through DC's you know, through the crisis, and then Zero Hour, and then Infinite Crisis, and then Flashpoint, you know, where it's just like, now it's Tuesday, which I agree with you, it shouldn't be, should be special, it should be something that you really, you know, (laughs) to to paraphrase, it's something you should have to pray over, almost. Um, Right. I guess with Marvel, that's never been done, so the fans aren't used to it. I laugh not because I'm laughing at them going, ah, now you get to suck it, Frodo. But, you know, <laughs> uh, but well, more of more of chuckling to myself because I've been there, I've been through it, and now I'm on the other side. So, Well, there's definitely that. But don't you also think that maybe part of it might be the fact of you're you're breaking down one of the major walls that exists between their universe yeah. and ours, you know, because I, I think if there's one thing that I think that JLA Avengers did masterfully was pointing out that while we do essentially the same job, which is telling stories of superheroes battling supervillains and sometimes even saving the world or maybe the whole damn universe, we do it very differently. Mm -hmm. And it, it did it in very beautiful ways that even I, as a longtime comics reader of both universes, even I was even impressed that there were instances where it was pointed out the differences between DC and Marvel that I had completely missed that I just, maybe on some con- you know unconscious level had had realized it but just never consciously realized it but when it was pointed out it was like oh well duh that's so obvious but yeah that is one of those differences and in very recent times and i'm talking like within the past you know 5 to 10 years it seems like we have been smashing those barriers at an alarming rate and I'm not sure that that's such a good thing because I always liked that very distinct flavor and feel between the two companies. And, you know, that that's what gave them their unique identity. It's why, you know, it's, it's fun to debate things, you know, like the, the who's tougher questions between DC and Marvel, but also the questions of, 
could Spider-Man exist in the DC universe? Could Superman exist in the Marvel universe? And you get those passionate arguments of, no, no, it's just, you know, Superman's not right for that universe and Spider-Man's not right for that, you know. I like that. And when you start doing certain things that are happening now, like this crisis event that looks like it's going to happen over at Marvel, I think you lose a little bit of something. Because I, I liked the fact that Marvel, up till now, yeah, they've had some minor tweaks and things like that. They've never had that crisis-level event. They've never had a need to, because they actively embrace their entire back catalog, no matter how silly some of the things may be, they found a way to make it work. And and now it looks like they're headed to something very similar. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, where that all goes. I, I you know, in a funny kind of way, I think it kind of adds credence to something I'd thrown out there a long time ago, uh, which was this idea that, you know, it, it might take another, you know, 20, 30, 50 years or whatever. But there may come a day when we'll see all of this under one one roof, you know, all all under one house, because it's becoming more and more blurred all the time yeah and and i think that's a shame because like you said one 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 of the one of the things and 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 it's one of the you know you and i have very few like big disagreements like we'll part ways on like an artist or something but we we we, uh i i think one of the argument quote unquote arguments let me put it to you that way because it's never like we're not going to stop talking to each other over this is uh you very much want disney to pick up superman Oh, absolutely, and uh, and I see all of your points to that, you know, of, of you know their track record, you know, you don't like how he's being handled through DC and Warner Brothers, etc. And I get all that, but there's this, and, and it's funny because it actually ties into something that you were just talking about. To me, once you you do that, I, I'd almost want him to just be his own thing, no other heroes mm-hmm. whatsoever. Not right. part of the Marvel universe, or or this, or even the Star Wars universe, which is a little far fetched. But uh, that I that if that did happen, because Superman as a character and his intrinsic motivations does not work in the Marvel universe. There are exactly. very few Marvel characters that do the right thing because it's the right thing to do without some kind of tragic backstory. To be fair, Superman has a tragic backstory, but it's not like. It's not what defines him. Yeah, it's not what defines him. It's just what made him. So, and and it's funny because I was thinking about this last night. I was was making dinner and uh, FX now has the Avengers on in rotation. So it was really awesome that (laughs) I live in a world where I can make dinner and watch the Avengers on TV. This is great. (laughs) Um, And it made me think that, you know, the Avengers worked as a movie uh, because... It took elements of, like, the Ultimate Universe, but it did it, like, more traditional Marvel style, where the Ultimate Universe was this ultra-gritty realistic about how these characters would would be, and they, they like, take elements of that, but say, no, we're not going to go down that road, and it made me realize that the early 2000s were such a transitionary period for comics... Coming out of the 90s, going into a new century, then 9-11 happens. And both Marvel and DC reacted the same in different ways. They both wanted to have... It's it's like, for whatever reason, 9-11 cemented the idea that the world is a scary place 
So our comics need to reflect that. Yeah. And Marvel did that with certain things in, in, in some of its mainstream books, but it, but with the Ultimates. And DC did that with the creation of the new Teen Titans and Outsiders leading into, into Identity Crisis. It's almost like you can, you can see the point where the, where the trigger is pulled. And now it seems like, for whatever reason... Both companies are wanting to kind of move away from that a little bit and get more into whatever this new era is going to be defined by because we can't see it because we're in the middle of it. The only reason we have some kind of clarity on the early 2000s is that it's 2015 and you can kind of look back and see the patterns as they play out, which is kind of harder to do as time goes on. So, you know, I think one of the other things that Marvel... Uh, and DC were big on was in in an effort to gain sales and to gin up interest in its readership, they started doing what you were talking about, which is breaking down old walls. We're going to bring Bucky back. We're going to bring Jason Todd back. You know, we're going to, you know, Daredevil's secret identity is going to be thrown into question. We're going to get rid of the spider marriage we're going to except for green lantern and batman retool the entire dc line and it's basically putting a band-aid over a gushing wound essentially is that sales are down so we need to do stuff but we're do we're not thinking long term because we can't think long term because we don't know what the audience is going to be in five years. So we're reacting to things as they happen, and once you start breaking all of the toys, eventually you're left with a toy box full of broken toys, and you have to make a decision to fix that. How are you going to fix that? And it seems like both universes are like, ah, oh, we're just going to start over. <laughs> so, because it's been done. So you, right. so there's precedent. You know, it, it's really weird that, you know, because they, I, I can see why they don't, you know, they have five-year plans. I know DC has five-year plans because they're a corporate structure. I am very sure now that Marvel has to turn in a five-year plan to their Disney people. Oh, yeah. I mean, there. Yeah. I mean, I know Disney doesn't really muck with the comics all that much. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like they're stepping in and saying this has to be done and that has to be done. But I'm sure that some corporate guy wants to know what Marvel's plans are in the next couple of years, so they know what to market to whatever you know. Mm-hmm. And the and you know and it's and it's good that the movies are so tied with the comics because there seems to be less of a leap of that. Uh, right. than, than over at DC, but it's just, man, it's just really weird to look back on that era where I was so pissed off, and then realized why I was pissed off, and why there was nothing that could be done about it at all. They were going to do it no matter <laughs> what. So it's just, it's not like it's not like we can hop in the DeLorean and and go back and keep our you know our kids from turning into assholes. So. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why that all just came out of me, but it just seemed to... <laughs> it just did. I feel a lot better now. I'm ready to go to work. <laughs> I'm ready to stop yelling at the dog. 
No, I, I think that was good discussion. I, I think it was important discussion at, at this oh, at this stage yeah. of the game with Crisis. I, I really do to to kind of address uh, some uh, some of the elephants in the room, so to speak. So no, I, I think that was good discussion. What else do we have on this one? That's it. I know it seems like uh, we should have more, but uh, whew. but <laughs> <laughs> we've gone on two hours already. So I think I think it's the time to say, hey, what do we got next time, Scott? All right, so in two weeks, in two weeks, we'll have a regular episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America in which we will be covering All-Star Squadron number 45 and Infinity Inc. number 14 in which we will have guest penciler Todd McFarland. Seem to be regular penciler, isn't he? He is, and yeah, I'm going to address that in the thing. Is uh, I, I was kind of shocked to notice that he was listed in the issue as guest penciler when, uh, yeah, spoilers, he will actually be the regular penciler of the series. So, yeah, I, 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 what I was reading was essentially he was stepping into the breach until they could get the permanent guy, and then he became the permanent guy. So I'm wondering, was there a plan that fell through, or they didn't have a permanent guy in place yeah i'm just you know i'm curious how that whole thing worked out hopefully we'll be able to uh to cipher out the details on that Alrighty, folks we also are at some point going to have uh more than one episode of crisis in a month just to kind of get us back on a track to uh to take us to the end of the year so uh but right. you know just just you know join the facebook page uh it's probably the best place to uh get uh, information on the new episodes as they come out and of course always to truefreaks.com but... well, here's one other thing i'd like to throw out there uh, as you're listening to the shows you know to this show uh to the regular tales show to any of the uh, two true freak shows that are out there how do any of the shows that mike or i do talk it up let others know you know tweet it out there put it on facebook whatever let others know that you're uh, you're listening to the show post those links up let's uh let's get continue to get people excited i mean our uh, Facebook group is growing by leaps and bounds, which is awesome. And I can only assume that's because of, you know, the shows being talked up. And so we really appreciate that. But we're shooting for the moon. We want to be bigger and better and, and get that many more uh, people in on the show and, uh, and get that feedback as well. So continue to write into the show. Let us know how we're doing, what you think. We're, we're working on the Two True Freaks political party, too. But that's just uh, <laughs> going to be a little more complicated. You have reached the end of another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America Presents Crisis on Infinite Earths. You can find this show under the Tales of the JSA feed at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can find a plethora of fine programs that span the range of geek subjects like giant monsters to time lords to anime to movie commentaries. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Comics Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Earning My Ears, Back to the Bins, and Growing Up Star Wars. Mike is also on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Longbox, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast which can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos, so much so they occasionally address themselves in the third person. If you want to address them, send email to talesofthejsa 
at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click the PayPal link. Donate any amount at all. Tell us which show you're sponsoring. Add a personal message if you want, and you will be an official sponsor of the very next episode with your message read right in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Become a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks family as a whole when you shop at Amazon. Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of the sale will get kicked back to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the JSA Presents Crisis on infinite earths.